Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples who give glory to our Lord Jesus Christ with every aspect of their lives. Our prayer is that this podcast will help us accomplish that end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful on your journey with Christ. Point to Ponder, November the 6th, Leviticus 19.18 and 2 John 5. The real challenge of preaching is trying to find a way to accurately and thoroughly relay what God has communicated without being needlessly dense or burdensome. It is not uncommon for people to ask how our pastors have something to say every week, and I always tell them that the real problem in ministry and preaching is not having nothing to say. The problem is figuring out what not to say. There is always more truth than we have time for, and this is part of the reason why we have these points to ponder. PTP is really the forum that we have created to give you a bit more insight and information about the text. In keeping with that goal, I want to endeavor to do something this week that I have yet to try with the devotions. My hope is to walk through our text for Sunday and write seven devotions about text that John either explicitly mentions or alludes to in his writing, 1 John 2. My prayer is that we would be reminded that the Bible is soaked with other references to the Bible, and this means that we can always dig deeper and incorporate other passages when we are studying a given text. The first passage that shows up in the text from Sunday is alluded to in verse 7 when John says he is writing to us about an old commandment. While the apostle does not mention what he has in mind, the context of his writings and his other works tell us quite clearly that he is thinking about Leviticus 19. How do we know this? First, we know it by the context. Whenever a person is studying the Bible, the very first piece of evidence that God gives to help us discern what he means is the surrounding scripture. In this case, John immediately describes the content of the commandment he has in mind by speaking about the imperative of loving our brothers in Christ. It is quite clear that John has the command to love our neighbor as ourselves in his crosshairs while he is writing. Second, we see that John alludes to this very passage in his next epistle, 2 John, in the opening lines. As the apostle writes to an unspecified lady, he immediately exhorts her to follow his instructions, which don't constitute a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. We see, therefore, quite clearly that John has Leviticus 19 in mind because this is the place where this directive is first articulated. This commandment is prevalent in the Scriptures. In fact, it is the one Jesus cites when he was asked about the greatest commandment in the Bible, and these truths have certain ramifications for us as readers. You see, we believe that those things that God repeats are most important to him and therefore should be most important to us as well. In this case, we have just mentioned four separate places where the Bible tells us that we are to love God and love our neighbors. This means, dear family, that we do not have a choice in the matter. Loving your brother or sister is not a nice thing to do. It is near to God's heart and truly a distinguishing mark of those who have faith in Christ. Point to Ponder, November 7th, Titus 3.3 John makes a pretty decisive statement in 1 John 2, 9, saying, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We discussed this assertion at length on Sunday, 
but that does not mean we exhausted the biblical teaching on the topic. Instead, many other texts describe the condition of lost people, often describing their own previous state prior to salvation, and one of those passages is found in Titus when Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul is writing in this text about his condition before Christ, and you will notice that he makes some connections that we made a few days ago. First, notice that Paul alludes to his previous passions and pleasures as evidence of his lostness. As we stated Sunday, the Christian life is not a passionless life. It is a life of changed, reordered passions. We were created to love, but the problem is that sin has marred our hearts such that we love the wrong things. What happens in salvation is that God reorders or restores our hearts to love Him, which is exactly what we have been designed to do. Second, I want you to see that Paul draws the same conclusion about those who hate their brothers that John does. The Bible clearly asserts that those who hate others are those who are unconverted. There is simply no room for malice, envy, and hatred for your brother in the Christian life. When we are converted, we are transformed in heart, and this transformation changes what we love and what we hate. Whereas we used to love darkness and hate fellow image bearers, now in Christ we hate the darkness and love our brothers and sisters. The simple truth is that Jesus changes us by the gift of sight, and this change will be seen in our affection that is tangibly exercised towards others. I would argue that this type of thinking is sorely needed in many church circles today. It has become quite fashionable to claim that Jesus' admonition not to judge is a get-out-of-jail-free card to continue in our sin without correction. However, we must notice that the very Word of God makes judgments consistently about the state of our hearts and our love for others. This means that we must choose whether we want to be biblical or independent in our judgments. If Paul and John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, were comfortable describing lostness by actions and dispositions, we must be comfortable in affirming the wisdom of their insights and walking in light of them in our day, regardless of how unpopular the sentiment might be in our relativistic world. The simple truth is that you will know them by their fruits, and fruits are easily seen by anyone who cares to look. Point to Ponder, November the 8th, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-10 through 10. John repeatedly states that he wants his readers to know that they are believers. The words John uses have a definitive tenor to them, and they also declare that it is possible to be assured of our standing before God. Interestingly, though, John does not root assurance exclusively in right declaration of faith. Instead, he goes farther and states that we must both affirm the truth of the gospel and we must demonstrate that we have come to know God in our lifestyle. This might sound like a works-based salvation sentiment, but this is to miss the clear order of the instruction. John is not saying that we earn our salvation by our fruit. He is saying that we show that we have been saved by the fruits of our actions. Stated differently, an orange tree does not become an orange tree when the first fruit materializes on its branch. Instead, it merely shows that it is an orange tree by the fruit. In the same way, a Christian does not become a Christian by his or her fruit, 
but he or she does show that they are in fact saved by the lifestyle they live. Is this John's idea? Hardly. In fact, today's text is a wonderful place where we once again see the idea that we can know that we are saved. Peter expresses the same idea with slightly different language, saying that we are to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. The word confirm is obviously in total agreement with the assurance that comes from knowing. The idea is that we can assure ourselves that we are saved by the way we live our lives. The question is, do John and Peter have similar fruits in mind? I always marvel at those who would claim that the Bible is simply written by man, as there are so many examples of different human authors writing remarkably similar things, which clearly testify of divine inspiration. In this case, notice that one of the characteristics that Peter mentions that serve to confirm our calling is brotherly affection with love. Peter says that these qualities keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply stated, the quality of loving your brother and the prospect of unfruitfulness is diametrically opposed. Those who love their fellow man, and this means both those who are easy to love and those who are difficult to love, have every reason to believe they have been saved because only a saved heart can love those who are not easily lovable, and this quality is ground for our assurance that we are saved because it will inevitably manifest fruit of the Spirit in our lives. When we love others, we demonstrate that we love God, and if we love God, we will walk in the Spirit so as to pursue the one we love, and if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the lust of the flesh. What Paul says are characteristics of sinners before salvation. Instead, we will see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Point to Ponder, November 9th, John 3.16 1 John 2.15 has presented some interpretive problems for Bible readers over the years. How do we reconcile John's command which tells us that we are not to love the world with his declaration that it was God's love of the world that caused him to send Jesus to die for our sins. If we are to be like God, aren't we to emulate him in what he loves? And if so, doesn't that mean that we should love the world as he loves the world? These are great questions, but they are also easily answered. Sometimes the words we use can mean different things based on the context. For instance, the Bible uses the term flesh to refer both to the physical body or the sinful nature of mankind. In one sense, the word is meant to refer to the physical body, and in the other it is utilized to allude to our natural sinful state. The reality is that the term world is used in different ways in various contexts as well. The word world in John 3 is meant to refer to the various peoples that populate the planet. Jesus' redemptive mission did not encompass Jews only. Instead, he came as a demonstration of his love for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. In this sense, we should absolutely love the world, and this is backed up by the context of our passage for the week. Remember, it is John who is rooting our assurance of faith and our love for our neighbor. We should love others of all kinds. In contrast, God's command to not love the world is not contradictory, but different. The world in this sense is referring to the natural, corrupt, and depraved aspects of this fallen planet. In this sense, John has the lost and rebellious aspects of this fallen planet in his mind. We are not to love the things of the world that rebel against God, 
and that naturally exists to lead us from God, the world in this sense is characterized by corrupt sin. The world is idolatrous, setting up something else in place of the worship of God. It is passing away as it is in opposition to the eternal God, and it is full of those who do not desire to seek or know the one true God. In these things, we are not to love the world, and for obvious reasons. The truth is clear. You cannot love both the world and God because the world and God are opposed to one another. You must choose whether you will root your faith, hope, and desires in what the world offers or in what God promises, and this decision offers no middle ground. As we close, it may be helpful to briefly consider how we should go about combating our natural love for the things of the world. If believers are honest, we must admit that there remains a struggle or pull to the things of the world at times. How do we continue to love and pursue God when there are so many opportunities to abandon our pursuit of Him? One answer is found in our epistle of study. You see, John says that God is light, and this means that salvation is tied to seeing the light. When we see the light, we see that which is far greater than anything the world can offer, and this sight is not only the way we are initially saved, but also the way we remain in the will of God as well. The way to combat the world and its sinful offerings is by looking at the God who is greater. He is the one we most want, and He is the one who offers us that which is imperishable and most desirable. When we find ourselves tempted to love that which the world offers, we must discern where we have been gazing. When we look to the Lord, we will find that which satisfies our soul, and a satisfied soul is imperative to war against the fleshly love of this passing place. Point to Ponder, November 10th, Romans 12.2 Romans 12 records a command that gives further clarity on our battle to love the right things. As I stated in the sermon, the Christian life is not a passionless life. The goal of Christianity is not to abandon any loves or affections. It is to love and pursue the right things. This is a fundamental way that the church must articulate the meaning of faithfulness in the Christian life. So often, we speak about the don'ts of the Christian life. Don't steal, don't cuss, don't lie, etc. While these are necessary, it is important to know that the pinnacle of Christianity is realized only as we do what is commanded, and what is most joyfully fulfilling. We see this marriage of do's and don'ts brought together quite nice in our passage for today. Notice how the text flows here. First, Paul says that we are not to be conformed to the world. That's the don't. The world here is used in the same way that John used it in 1 John 2. It communicates the kinds of things that oppose God. Paul says that Christians are not to be shaped by these things, but being shaped by them is inevitable if there is not an alternative strategy. Folks, if we believe that we will become Christ-like simply by avoiding that which the world platforms, we will be miserable and worthless to the kingdom. There is a great error in sitting down, doing nothing, and speaking to no one in order to avoid disobedience. This is where the do aspect of Paul's theology shows itself. While we are not to be conformed to the world, the don't, we also are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, this is the do. We must be transformed, and this transformation is the product of God's grace and our pursuits. 
Paul is saying that the Christian is to get off the sideline and trust that God will work in us to renew us through our obedient action. Contextually, we believe that the way our minds are transformed is through the intentional study of God's Word. We believe that it is our responsibility to take every thought captive, evaluate every message, and think in accordance with God, and the way that we go about this transformation is intentional and energetic study of God's Word. Please note there is a biblical reality here that must be mentioned. We do not believe that as we pursue the Lord and His Word, God is doing something in our minds and hearts that we will only perceive after the fact. Sometimes it takes a few days or months to see how God has been busy shaping you, but by faith we realize that as we are obedient to heed God's command to study and internalize the Word, He is faithful to transform us by renewing our minds. May we be diligent in faith that He is not a liar, and may this activity be the thing we replace our previous pursuits with, understanding that the Christian life is one of passionate action, not indifferent passivity. All of us are shaped by something. This is God's design, and it can either be marvelous or harmful. The difference between the righteous and the sinful is not that one is influenced and the other is not. The difference is realized in the source or cause of our transformation. Christian, I hope that you are being shaped by God's Word, and I want to warn you that if you are not being shaped by Scripture, something else is conforming you. There is no third ground. Instead, there are those who are being transformed in their thinking and those who are being further conformed to sinful thoughts and actions. Point to Ponder, November 11th. James 4, 4. The biblical story is one of God's redemptive plan, and that redemption takes place as God intercedes and defeats the enemy that otherwise enslaves and dominates this natural fallen world. From the very beginning, when the serpent walked, yes, I wrote that correctly, up to Eve with the temptation to forsake God's commands and rightful rule, the entire cosmic narrative is one of good and evil. From the fall of man forward, there has always been two teams. There are those who love the Lord and follow Him, and those who don't. You can search the Scriptures high and low, but you will never find the proverbial Sweden, everybody must take a side. This is James' point in our text for today as he reveals to us that we must choose a friend. We will either be friends with the world, or we will be children of God. It seems that this idea is rather apparent but it strikes me that so many folks act as if we can play both sides of the coin. This attempt to be friends with the world and friends with God is far more prevalent than we would like to admit. The truth is that the church has historically fallen into this trap more times than we would like to consider. Many today attempt to be friends with the world when we parrot worldly sentiments that contradict clear biblical teaching. For instance, the church is attempting friendship with the world when she won't simply condemn what the Bible condemns. Christians aren't loving Jesus and the world when they assert that God's clear teaching on sexuality is not to be followed. Instead, in the attempt to be friendly towards the world, we abandon our allegiance to God, which is a fool's errand. Fellow believer, the most loving thing the church can do is exalt Christ and affirm the fact that He is totally opposed to sinful patterns. This is not because we despise the world, but because we truly and rightly believe that any sin which is cherished and pursued will not lead to blessing. We know that a sinful lifestyle leads to eternal torment, 
And this means that the most caring thing we can do is articulate the truth that Christ is not friendly towards those who refuse to heed His clear and abiding commands as revealed in His Word. There are a variety of other examples we could mention, but perhaps we can summarize this truth by simply affirming that we cannot be both friends with the world and with God in our gospel message. The Bible is crystal clear that Christ died for our sins, and this means that we must recognize and repent of our sin if we are going to be saved by Jesus. Many have attempted to soften or even deny this truth, but the desire to soften the truth is nothing but compromise and a denial of Christ as our Lord and Savior. History can be a marvelous guide for us as it shows us that James's words have been proven true repeatedly. Anytime the church has attempted to strike a middle ground between biblical allegiances and worldly sentiments, she has suffered. We must affirm the Lordship of Christ exclusively, and this means that anything that would compete and or contradict His Word cannot be pursued nor embraced. Point to Ponder, November 12th, 1 Corinthians 7.31 I suppose we should answer one more potential question as we close our devotions for the week. Perhaps someone may read our thinking and wonder, why would we automatically choose to align with Christ? Isn't it possible that saddling up to the present world is a totally justifiable position? My assumption is that most of my present readers would not ask such a question, but we must understand that many in our world will. You see, if not seen through the eyes of faith, it seems rather irresponsible to side with the one we cannot physically see. The world offers tangible, instantaneous benefits. The Bible affirms that sin is fun for a season. See Hebrews 11, 25 and 26. And this fun can be quite appealing if we don't understand the long-term realities at play. So, to answer our question succinctly, why do we believe it is wise to align with Christ? One reason is His being. It is right to honor and follow Jesus because He deserves our allegiance. Jesus is Lord, whether we affirm Him as such or not. This means that to follow Christ is just a natural and necessary reaction to recognizing His divinity. The above reason is sufficient, but there is also a more utilitarian perspective that merits mentioning. We are wise to follow Christ not only because He is rightly Lord, but also because He is eternal and this world is passing away. Absolutely every benefit, perceived blessing, or treasure that the world would offer us is fleeting. There is nothing on this planet that will endure. Instead, it is all passing away. This means that those who are pursuing Jesus are putting their faith, hope, and expectations in that which will never disappear, while those who place their trust and desires in the things of earth will be sorely disappointed. Years ago, my grandfather taught me a phrase. It was not unique to him, but it stuck with me to this day. My grandpa was a very generous man. Some would say too generous. Often people would ask him why he would so freely give money or resource to someone in need. In response, he would almost always shrug his shoulders and say, You can't take it with you. His answer is simple and pithy, but it is also grounded in the right perspective. He understood that everything that he had accrued in this life was only temporarily his. If we peel the layer of the onion back, a metaphor employed for the distinct joy and pleasure of Dr. Robert Rowland, a bit more, 
we would see that he was choosing not just to give away treasure on earth, he was generous here while working to store up treasures in heaven. He knew that this place will pass away, but his God would never not be on the throne of heaven, and this meant that it was wise and necessary for him to see the fleeting nature of this place and the enduring blessings that await those who are faithful friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this earth is passing away. May we live like it. There is no reason to love that which is temporal when we can be enduring friends with the one who will always be there to bless us.